Uh, hey, welcome to Eastlake. It is part three of a four-part series called Advent, the series that takes us through Christmas. Uh, you're probably familiar with the term Advent, or you, like me, own an Advent calendar, uh, which basically functions uh, as a countdown to how many days are left until Christmas. Ours currently sits on our mantle on our uh, fireplace, and inside it has like these little doors that you open up, and inside is an Andy's Mint, as well as uh, something creative that my wife came up with, some sort of activity for the kids to do uh, every single day, like make a card or sing Christmas, you know, something Something cheesy, it functions as at, for two, two things. One, it's the very first thing that the kids do every single morning as they come down the stairs. So yes, they're consuming Andy's mints at like 6 a.m., but that's fine. Gets their day started just right. It also functions to answer the question so that I don't have to, hey, Dad, how many days until Christmas? I'll say, I don't know, go count the doors, son. And then he goes and starts counting, and by the time he, he just gets distracted, he's like, one, two, three, four, all right, let's just go. You know what I mean? And then he, and then he doesn't ask me any more questions about how many days till Christmas. So it's really a fantastic tool if you, if you don't currently own one. That's been, that basically summarizes for us what we think of when we think of Advent. Um, it's just a countdown until Christmas. But uh, when it, you look at the church and the history of the church, Advent has been a season for something kind of different than that. It really, I mean, I, I know it does count us towards or its preparation for Christmas. Christmas, but on a different way. It's actually mildly ironic um, in the way that it prepares us as well, because by far, Christmas, as we talked about it like a week ago, two weeks ago, is the most optimistic holiday that we celebrate as a culture. Uh, there's so much optimism surrounding Christmas, both the anticipation of and the shopping and all of the, the colors and the, the feel-goodness and the, the Starbucks, you know, calorie-free drinks that we are consuming right now, all of the incredible stuff that surrounds Christmas. It's the most positive time of the year. That's the, how the song should go. Um, and it, it functions almost for us uh, like a, a way that uh, is different than any other holiday because nobody else gets this psyched up for, like, Labor Day. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you see people who are all about the Christmas thing, and you're like, I kind of get it. It's really nice, and it's fine because it is so nice, and we get that people are really into Christmas, and there are all kinds of songs on our radio that we're currently listening to or Spotify station or whatever that point us towards this positivity. In fact, one of the songs that you're going to probably hear on the radio and mumble under your breath or sing for the 30th time this year is a song, in fact, finish this, finish this thing for me, From Now On, I was going to sing it, but I'm, I'm going to save you from that pain. From now on, our troubles will be far, out of sight, far away, whatever. They won't be here. Like, even in this Christmas story, this carol or whatever that we sing, it's all like, hey, during these 30 days or 20 days or how many different days it starts, I can't remember, but uh, on these 25 days, I should know, it's the 25th. Anyways, it always is. Uh, during that period, it feels like we've got nothing to worry about. In fact, buy whatever you need. Those credit card statements don't come until after the 25th. All kinds of different, like, putting it off until then. We know that trouble exists in the world, but at least at Christmas time, we kind of set this thing down. And any cheesy Christmas movie is like, hey, can't we all come together for this season? And can't this, can't this season, this short window of time, can't we put aside our family differences or, or the things that are going on in life or whatever and just kind of resolve? And so it's super, super positive. But interestingly enough, the ironic take that the church has taken is not to look at the positive side of existence during this point of this season, but to uh, do the opposite, to do what's called fading the public, which basically means this. When the public, when everybody is going one way, 
We go intentionally the other way. Uh, a common word for it is countercultural. We're going to be countercultural. When everybody zigs, we're zagging. Speaking of the zags, they lost another one last night. Heartbreaker, terrible. They're still good, fine, whatever. But we are going to go the opposite direction because it makes sense for us. There, I think that there's value or opportunity in the other side of the equation. So if you've ever gone to Disneyland and you're like me, you watch what everybody else wants to do while you're waiting in line and you're getting ready to pay $1,000 so that your kid can go see Mickey. Um, you, you're standing in line there and you hear the chatter about, oh, we got to go check out this, we got to go check out this. And what I do in that moment is go, all right, everybody else is going there. We are going to go to Splash Mountain because everybody else is going because they don't want to get wet early on, but we don't care. So we are going to go to the place that you aren't. And then as I'm going to that place, I keep talking about how awesome this other place is so that everybody will overhear me and go to that other place, and then I go somewhere else. See, I'm playing the long game when I do this thing. So that's the plan. We fade the public. When everybody else is positive, um, we point out, or the church takes the Advent season to say, yeah, well, it's not all really all that great. The, The world is actually a very, very dark place. We cannot afford to buy into the numbingness that is sometimes the Christmas season of thinking always positively and never going negatively in this way, because life doesn't work out like that. We know that. In fact, um, a really great article this week came out uh, about somebody uh, that you probably all know. Her name is Ellen DeGeneres. She is uh, host of the show, The Ellen Show. She was the voice in Finding Dory. She uh, is releasing, or I think it just released this last weekend, uh, a new stand-up special on Netflix, I believe, maybe HBO, called Relatable. Um, and in it, uh, the, the director of this show did this interview with her, or, or the New York Times did the interview, and they interviewed uh, this director of it. The, the title of the article is called Ellen DeGeneres is Not as Nice as You Think, which you might think, oh, this is so appropriate for a church to be able to talk about this because of all the whatever. I'm not going that. I love Ellen. I, would, I, I tried to pay good money to go see her when she was doing her show in Seattle, and I didn't get tickets. I, I missed out. So, uh, I don't save your emails. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need those. What I'm saying is in this article, he talks about how she leads this show on television. Her persona, her on-screen persona is always this upbeat, bubbly, I'm dancing to everything. I play lots of different games and everybody loves me. Uh, and if you've ever watched this, it's ultra, ultra, ultra positive. And many times she has felt she's going through this thing where she's trying to feel like, do I want to keep doing this? And she's got people in her life who are saying, you've got to. This world is so broken. We need the Ellen show. We need the hour of Ellen to just keep us grounded and positive. Positivity, uh, and then her uh, her wife is actually telling her like, "Don't this is this is killing you because that's not really you all the time. Nobody can be that upbeat all the time. She's not as nice as you think. That's the point he's getting to. He in the interview uh, he quotes this: being trapped in the world of being asked to dance and being expected to be nice. It's real. In fact, she gave up. You maybe knew this. She doesn't dance in the audience. She gave that up two years ago. She's like, it felt like a show. It felt like this. Like, all right, monkey dance." You know, and she's like, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't feel that every single day. It started out maybe it was really exciting, and now it's like, feels like a show, and I don't want to do that. That's not really what life is like. I'm sure there's people who think she's kidding or can't have a bad day, but she does. It's an interesting pickle that she's in. Now, some of the music that you may have loved and, and speak volumes to you 
is not the positive music. It doesn't have like the, the, like it's really commercialized and it always is like upbeat and it just gets you excited and inspired to go take on the world. Some of the best music that you look at and be like, this speaks to me. It's very dark, bluesy. Life's not all that great and it's not always that good. Now, here's what's interesting. When you listen, when you actually listen to some of the actual Christmas carols, Advent carols that we sing around Christmas time, now they're in a different sort of like, antiquated language, and so sometimes we may not understand how dark they are, but many of the Advent songs are actually dark. All of the, like, the current ones about Christmas and Santa Claus coming down the chimney and kissing Grandma or whatever, those are all super, po- I think it's Mama. Anyways, um, all of those are really, really positive, positive. and then you get ones like Oh Holy Night, or then you get one like Silent Night where everything's dark, or then you get O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Why are we singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? Because the world is a dark and dreary place, and we need a light of hope. The point of Advent is to walk us through this incredible darkness so that we will then appreciate the light of hope that is the birth of Christ into this world. In Advent, we are all invited all together to prepare ourselves for the Lord's coming by gathering intentionally as a community to hear the truths about the human condition that are hard to bear. We know this. We live in this world. We read the news. We know that there are things in this world that are really, really hard to bear, and they come in different forms. They can come in the form of in the world, which is like this external in the world. We read about things, earthquakes, tragedies, natural disasters, things outside of anybody's control that make the world a really broken place that are really painful. I don't know why your friend got in a car accident. I don't think that God kind of did this. I don't think there's a plan. Everything happens for reason. I don't buy into that. I think that we live in a broken world and tragedy exists. Also, then we take it and we internalize it a little bit more. It comes a little closer to home. I do think that there is a darkness in terms of in mankind, that, that, that uh, mankind can have his dark side, that if man left to go, we are not a, on a progression towards we're getting smarter and more educated and more kind to each other. It only takes uh, a, a looking around to realize that things can go sideways really, really fast. My grandparents um, are going to be celebrating their 85th birthday this, uh, this next week, 85 years old, uh, which means I was doing the math the other day, it puts them back when they were, they were in their teens when the whole stuff was going on with the Holocaust, and because that feels like ancient history to me. Like, I don't know about you, I, and we have a fairly young church, so I'm, I'm guessing it's you as well. We've read about it. We've gone to the Holocaust Museum somewhere. We, we, we know that all that kind of t- stuff took place, but it feels like um, in, a, in a world far away, not like in a galaxy far, far away, but like in a world that no longer, like, we're past that, we're beyond that. And then you watch a, a movie like Hotel Rwanda or, or read about the, the Rwandan genocide and all the things that are taking place in this world not that long ago. Or when you read about the stuff that's even in our city, like, you read that something, like, the cops got called to this place and it was this crazy deal and somebody turned themselves in and I, we're trying to figure out why they did it and what's the motives and what's the, what's the, or the, another school shooting somewhere. And we're like, man, there's, like, brokenness in this world that is not just, like, oh, some sort of natural storm developed or these rocks fell and we didn't know what happened. We know what happened. It's human agency. They made a decision and they did this. Why in a world where, you know, it feels like can't we just all just love each other? And they... Obviously, that's not the case in every case. So we look at it and we'd be like, the world is a dark, dark place in there. And then, and most importantly, by the way, because we like to externalize a lot of things, there is a darkness inside of every single one of us that we are very well aware of, that we try and present a pretty good persona. We try and be a pretty good person. In fact, you think, I think, I'm a pretty good person. That's why you're here today. You're like, well, pretty good people. They go to church, don't they? We're kids. Come on, let's pack the cars. Why are we going to church? Because we're good people. This is what good people do. And we learn about what it's going to take to be good. So that's why you come to this kind of a place or somebody invited you or whatever. Anyways, 
we, we, we think that we're generally good. And our greatest fear is that people would find out things about us that we don't want them to know about. In fact, I remember growing up, um, uh, some preacher or book or something like talked about how someday you stand before God and he plays this like DVR of everything you ever did as a 16-year-old kid and your mom's watching while you're doing it. You want to live like that? And you're like, oh my God, that sounds horrible. Please no. That's like our, that's like our, our we, we just, we're so, we work so hard at creating this polished image and yet every one of us knows that there's a little bit of brokenness in us that is, as, and try as hard as we may, we are ultimately, we just fail, we fail, we fail. In fact, in one of the songs you just sing, I was sitting down here at the front, I didn't even catch it for first service, but I realized it, it, one of the lines in there is a hundred billion failures disappear. And he's not talking about, or this, the lyric of whoever wrote this thing, um, is it, not talking about like externally. It's like it, this idea of I've tried, I, so will I, I will worship you, or I'll try to do this. How many times have we tried to be good and then it fails? And we're like, well, you pick yourself up and you just, you try again. And you do this. And it's failure after failure after failure after failure. And in, in the song, it, it talks about all of those things disappear and you love us anyway. And we cry out to the grace that's been extended to us. That's like, that's like a, a reassuring thing for those of us who feel like, gosh, because we've had friends who have promised something and then not come through, and then we're like, ah, it's all right. There's probably some circumstances. And then they did it again, and they did it again. And then at some point, they just stop being your friend. You don't tell them that, and they don't call themselves not your friend anymore. But you're like, I don't really like that person. They just keep failing me and failing me and failing me. Or my dad failed me and failed me and failed me. And there's no relationship, and there's no trust. And when there's no trust, there's no relationship. So there's failure, 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 failure. And then we feel like, we, then we like internalize that and look at ourselves and be like, all right, I'm trying to be this good person. Failure, failure, failure. I totally get why you wouldn't want anything to do with me, God. I, I'm in. I, I, me neither. There's a darkness inside of us. And even when we're trying to be good, there's a potential for failure. Tolkien writes about this. If you've ever read or watched Lord of the Rings, the image of the ring, right, is this, this thing of power uh, that is also dangerous. It's not the typical, the thing that I love about the Lord of the Rings is that it's not the typical good versus evil. Anybody that, ha- that is good is so tempted by power that they have the potential to become bad. You have to, you have to watch this. Be careful. Don't just use this. Even when you're using it for what you think is a righteous end, watch out for what it does to you. There is something inside of you that is inclined towards that darkness. So don't, in your pursuit of righteousness, fall prey to power, ego, and self. Dude, that message is great. It's fantastic. It doesn't show up as much in the movies, which is why you should read the book. But anyways, that's so potentially, that's so potentially insightful for us as human beings to not just say, as we sing and as we go and be like, yeah, the world's a really dark place. I'm also dark. I also need hope. I also need something in me that when we sing about in these Christmas carols, the darkness that exists in the world, I cannot, I cannot afford to exempt my own self from that. And my wife and I, she was asking me this week, what, what are we talking about and what are you, what, what's your direction that you're going? And I, I was mentioning some of this stuff and she goes, see, that's the part about the thing that I like, like about candles and you should liken it to this. You should bring a candle up on stage, which I probably should have, but, and then have, every, have Andrew, whoever, kill the lights and all of a sudden it's all darkness. And what, when, when, when it's all darkness and there's a candle, your eyes are immediately drawn to that. I'm so used to the presence of darkness and then what I want is just a little single light. 
That, in that moment, that becomes the most evident thing. It provides this like focal point. It provides this like, okay, there's super value in this. A candle in a well-lit room, what's it good for? Maybe smell, maybe fragrance. Beyond that, it's not doing anything. But in the world of darkness, there's a light. So that's why when you read, we did our confession prayer a moment ago, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, he shows up over and over and over again, a light against the darkness, a light for a dark and dreary world. A light, a light. A weary world rejoices. One of the songs that we sing is that. The thrill of hope that amidst the darkness that is existence, against all of the things that, I, you know, tragedy happens, tragedy strikes, we are clinging on to a hope that all of it at some point makes sense. And it makes sense, we believe, through the promise of Jesus Christ. So, with that said, I want to read to you today a passage that comes from the book of Habakkuk, which is actually an Old Testament thing, and it's, it's not a typical Advent. In fact, I doubt that Walmart has any Christmas cards with Habakkuk chapter 1 in it. I doubt it. Um, you've never received one, and you shouldn't give one either. It's not, it's not typically a good Advent series. But listen to what he's going to do here, because Habakkuk is one of, it's what's considered to be a minor prophet, all right? So in Israel's history, they go through the whole exodus out of Egypt. God kind of leads them in, in, in very visible and tangible ways out of Egypt and into their own promised land. And then they're in there trying to make sense of what it means to be a godly nation. And in the process, they fail, and they fail, and they fail, and they fail again. They're eventually invaded in the, by the Assyrians in the north and the Babylonians in the south, and they're carried off into exile. And much of what we have written about in the Old Testament comes from a people group who find themselves in exile, who were given special and preferential treatment specifically chosen by God, thinking they had the invincible get-out-of-jail-free card, we have the superpower card, we, you can't do anything to us, we are invincible because of who chose, has chosen us. And then they find themselves beaten and in slavery and in bondage and, and trying to make this new life and trying to make sense, really. Here's what they're trying to do. Make sense of the brokenness that is their world. These dots don't seem to connect. We have all these people going, well, everything happens for a reason. And they're going, really? I don't think so. And they're writing these things out. And they're watching as people who don't appreciate, listen, they would say, listen, we understand. We have not been as loyal to you as we should, there's been some infidelity in our relationship. We've fallen in love with other gods, yada, yada, yada. However, the people that you're allowing to come in and take over are far worse than us. What are you thinking, God? Why would you reward them with anything? So much of the prophetic literature that we read is them crying out and saying, we see so much brokenness in the world. Listen, if you ever thought, well, the problem with Christianity is that it's so positive. It's like this positivity. I come, everybody just comes on a Sunday, Sunday morning. They get riled up by the music and the lights and the guitar solos. And they get inspired to go out and be Jesus in their workplace. And it's super positive. And I'm just like, it's not really me. You crave more of the like, life's ugly, huh? Sucks. See ya. Have a good, you know. Make the best of it this week, right? That's like, for, for, for a lot of us, we resonate with that kind of stuff. Your favorite books are like Ecclesiastes where it's like, there's meaningless in everything. I've tried it. I've done it. I've, I've done all the things. I've made all the monies. I've married all the women. And it just doesn't end up. And it's all dust and brokenness. The end. And you're like, oh my God, that feels so good. 
I want, I, I like that. If you like that, you love Advent. And there's some of you who's like, no, just positive. Turn it towards Jesus, please. You know what I mean? Like, I need, I need inspiration. I need to go out. I have nothing for you this week. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Let me read to you Habakkuk and, 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 and as a replacement, though. How long, Lord, must I cry for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. This is, in essence, your kids, if you have kids, and you have multiples of them, and they're downstairs, uh, or they're upstairs, and you're in the kitchen, and they go, Mom, he's hitting me. Violence. In other words, come do something. Somebody's doing something to me that they should not, but you do not save. But you have headphones in, and you're listening to a podcast, and you don't give a rip. Call me if you're bleeding, right? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Then he follows up in verse 13. It goes forward in verse 13. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Listen to that. That's us saying, listen, we know we're not perfect, but they're worse. Why would you let them win? That doesn't make any sense. We're Israel. Babylon, I'm kind of Christian. Like, I, I go to church once in a while. I've even given the offering once. Like, why would you allow that stuff to happen to somebody like me? We've all had those dark prayers. Then, verse two, or chapter two, sorry, he starts out chapter two by saying this. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. Fancy language for saying, I'll stand, I'm, I'm right here. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. I'm here, I'm listening, what do you gotta say about that? I'm so frustrated, you're not doing the things you want me to, you know, all that kind of, whatever. Here's the answer that comes in response. The only thing that shows up is simply this. The righteous shall live by faith. In light of all the brokenness, in light of this, why do you allow this and I can't seem to connect the dots? The voice that comes in the darkness is the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Paul, Paul writes a letter to a church in Rome a few years later, right? This is, well, hundreds of years later. Um, He's writing to a church that's post-Jesus now, um, and he's trying to help uh, them make sense of life and what Christianity might mean in light of all of the different world religions, because Rome is not only the hub of the empire, it's the home of all of the different Greek mythology and all the different religions, and everybody having explanations for what life is supposed to mean and the purpose and the existence for life, and Christianity's on the scene and trying to defend itself against all of the different options. And Paul reaches back into this Old Testament phrase, and here's what he says. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. What he's saying is, he's reaching in and saying, at one point, there was a group of people, our ancestors, who lived in captivity in Babylon trying to make sense of life, and this is what they learned from it. And while they lived it, the same thing is true for us. We live in this alternate form. We're not really like physically in, in captivity. We're not physically in exile, but our life metaphorically is in exile. We are constantly waiting for deliverance. Last week, I said that Karl Barth uh, wrote about the church. The only season that, ad- that the church has ever known is the season of Advent, the season of in-between, the season of every week we gather together, and we come in from a world that beats us down constantly. There's so much darkness in the world externally, in mankind in general, and then also in us. And we sit and we wait and we hope in the darkness for a little glimmer of light, a little glimmer of hope. And he says, the gospel has been the same. We're all waiting for the same thing. The message is still the same. The message that we get is this, the righteous will live by faith. Now, what does faith mean? 
Faith is a very ambiguous word too. What does that mean? Live morally. The righteous will live by having higher moral standards than other people, by living a pretty decent life, by thinking of themselves as a pretty good person. Is this this mental ascent thing? And this is a critique that many people have about faith is that, well, yeah, faith is for weak people who can't succeed in life by their own steps, right? They, they, they can't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, so it's the opening of the people, it's the crutch for the people who need it to get through things. And he's trying to say, no, this is different. Like, the righteous will live by faith. Faith in what? Faith that something has happened and something will happen. Faith in the Advent season points us to a reality. What are we building towards? We are building towards the appearance of God incarnate through the birth of Jesus, through the celebration of Christmas. Listen, Advent season is dark, 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 dark. Isn't the world dark, but Bethlehem. Dark, 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 but there's a star over Bethlehem that night. Go and see Jesus, the light of the world, the hope of humanity. The hope that what he teaches what he, that, that he's not just like this really good preacher, had a really good things to say, and was a really just a good dude that seemed to be pretty influential and kind of taught a decent way of doing moral living. More than that. And, by the way, that it actually happened. One of the verses that you will read in a Christmas card this, this year comes from Luke's account of his description of the birth of Jesus, trying to place it in history. And if you come to either one of our Christmas Eve services, quick plug, at three or five o'clock, bring your family, here, you'll probably hear me read from Luke chapter two. And here's what it says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This feels like the on-screen, like right before the story gets going. If they were to make a really great movie um, uh, that doesn't include Jim Caviezel or Mel Gibson about the birth of Jesus, um, it would probably have this fading in from the darkness, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And then listen to what Luke does a chapter later, which, by the way, what is Luke doing? Remember, we, we, we've heard this before. We've talked about Luke. He starts his letter by writing to his friend Theophilus saying, hey, there's a lot of like random stories about this guy named Jesus. I took it upon myself to give you an orderly account of who he actually was so that you don't get swayed by popular opinion or think that this is all just rumor mill stuff. I want to take to you, and I, listen, I wasn't one of his disciples, but I interviewed a lot of them, and I followed them around, uh, and here's what I know about Jesus. Then he jumps ahead, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, head Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of blah, 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 blah. What's he doing? Names and places, names and places, names and places. He is trying to, but you don't need to know all of this. In fact, there's historians that say, well, he got some of this stuff wrong. It doesn't matter. Here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to place this in actual history. As opposed to a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, which we know is not real. I'm not breaking any news to you that Star Wars doesn't actually, it's a great story, get lost in it, that's fine. Doesn't actually exist. He's basically saying, I don't want, there's a temptation for you to think, oh, that's really cool, a guy came along who could walk on water. That sounds like a fun story. He used the force to do that. He's saying, no, in an actual place with actual people in history, he came. It's, now, he's not here anymore. It's going to take faith for you to believe that he actually came and was actually God incarnate. That is gonna require you to believe something. It's not, it's not a big thing for you to be like, yeah, Jesus could, a guy named Jesus, could he have been born? I mean, I guess, yes. 
And some people think he was more than just a really good teacher. Okay, fine, whatever, that's great for them. I don't know. He understands, listen, to, to really believe that he actually existed, he was actually God incarnate, that's gonna require a huge level of faith. The righteous will live by that faith. One, that he, that he in the first place came, which is, by the way, what we celebrate at Christmas, which is the point of the Advent season. Darkness, 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 a little bit of light. And then not only that, but then also that he will come again. Because while he was here, he is recorded multiple times as having this language of, listen, I've come, I've come, but I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back, and all this, all this, this different types of language. And by the way, you can get caught up in so much of the minutia of all of this, and he uses very apocalyptic language, which is like this um, very cryptic way of, of speaking. And some of the time, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. You need to know that. It's not all about um, what's in the future going to take place. Some of it was like, hey, this whole setup in Jerusalem it's going to crash. And it ends up, AD 70, it's come, the, the Romans come in and demolish the entire place. We know that in Roman history, not even like, oh, you have to believe that because it's in the Bible. Roman history says, we went to Jerusalem, squashed it like a bug, and we moved on. Some of that is that language. Some of it is future language. I'm not smart enough to know all of the differences between the two. And what, but here's what I do know. He offers us the, the language that we really need to focus on is not what's going to happen, but what we should do in light of that, if we do, if we live in the faith that he came and that we live in the faith that he's coming again, or a better way of saying that is that there's life after this life, because I don't want to get caught up in, in going, all right, he's coming back. Could be Friday. Let's all go. Let's all get ready. Way too many people have like sank their life savings and their whole hopes and dreams into that. And then Friday comes and goes and they're like, oh boy, we got that wrong. I don't want to do that. I want to live with the sense that that could definitely perhaps happen. That could be the way that it goes. Now, multiple generations have thought that that could be the way that it goes. The best way to be like is, yeah, that I'm open to that, but I'm living right now as if, as if I, I am I'm living this life. I should live in a way that makes sense of me going that there is some sort of life after this life, that what I do with this matters, that this is not, not all happenstance, <clears throat> that it is important. So here's... Here's what uh, he says in Mark chapter 13. <clears throat> Here's his recommendation. If that's true, then be on guard, be alert. You don't know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know where the owner of the house or when he will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everybody, watch. Live like he's watching. Listen, you work harder when you know your boss is gonna see the work that you're producing, don't you? When you know it's going in a file and nobody's ever gonna read it, you just, I'm just filling up words. What's, uh, how, do is it, how do I make it look like I am interested, but like I'm not? And you, if you've been at your job long enough, you know. But you also know that if the boss goes, hey, um, can you have that? We're gonna review it on Monday. That's a different call to work. You invest things more more intentionally in that line of work, in that line of thinking. So here's Jesus' thing. Uh, he's saying that there is life after this life, that this isn't all there is, that what you do with this life matters. God is watching. You are accountable. So keep watch. Live your life as if he's watching. The Advent season points us towards this. It reminds us the world is an incredibly dark place, but there is hope. And we live with the faith that he has come, and we, we reenact that every single year around this time. 
through celebrating Christmas together, through coming together at Christmas Eve, through walking through some of the history of it, and to say it actually happened, it actually happened, come on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about how I really believe it actually happened, and then we live with the hope and the anticipation of the hope that someday all of these unconnected dots make sense, that someday there is a purpose, that he does have the whole world in his hands, in spite of the fact that many times it looks like it's out of his hands. Many times it looks like he's the absent God, as many of them cry out, and we talked about in week two or whatever. Duceps Scandi, the, the silent God. Where are you? And all I get is silence. But I live with the hope that that's not actually how it works, that on this side of existence or this side of eternity, I don't know it all, but I'm living with the faith that one day it will be. That's what it is. I don't know how it all is exactly going to work, and I definitely don't know when, but Advent teaches us to live as if it means something because the world is dark, but it's not without hope. And when you actually believe it, when you believe, listen, when you believe that something, that rescue is, is imminent or that it will make sense, it changes how you live now. Imagine, remember um, earlier this year, there was a soccer team, a youth soccer team in Thailand that got trapped in the caves, and it took them two weeks to get out of there. Now, it didn't take them two weeks to find them. They found them within a, like a day or two or whatever, but they were so far back and the access to get in and out, it was tough. And, and we, across the world, were watching. Elon Musk sends Tesla, volunteer, uh, Tesla engineers over there to help figure this whole thing out. How do we get you out? And can you imagine being those boys, 12, 13, 14 years old, trapped in this cave, and all of a sudden some, someone coming, popping up after you've been in there going, I'm probably gonna die here. This is insane. And then somebody showing up and going, uh, we know you're here. Uh, help is on the way. Rescue is coming, but just not yet. We're trying to figure out the logistics. I can't just pull you out right now, but it's coming. Imagine, imagine how that changed. Imagine how you go from no hope towards hope, but not yet realized hope. We're not breathing the fresh air. The dots don't make complete sense. There's still darkness. I'm, st- I'm still in pain. I'm still, I'm still in a cave, but it's coming. How would that how do you think that changed those kids' attitude, outlook, perspective? In that same way, Advent says, Advent, 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 every year we reenact this. He has come, he will come. That should change how you live. That should change the way that you live. So my final question as we think about this as some homework for us this week. What would you do if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it actually mattered? What would you do? How would you live your life differently if you, if you genuinely believed that he has come, he will come again, that I am called to keep watch. That if, that if, that if, that if he's coming, I'm supposed to be watching. If, if, I, if I know my work is gonna be watched, what does that mean? What do I gotta do? How do I live that differently? May that, may we be the type of people who stay awake, who keep watch, who stay vigilant. Vigilant, that's the word, so short. Just making sure you're still awake. How do we remain vigilant on this and true? May, may, may Advent this year, as we, as we walk out of this building and go into our car and turn on all the positivity with a smirk and a little bit of mirth in our face, go, yeah, it's not all positive though, is it? That there is a darkness and we embrace it. And we embrace it because of the presence and the existence of a hope that we celebrate at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, May that sort of a message be so opposite of what we get the rest of the day that it stands in such stark contrast that we absolutely cannot miss it and that you would let that be an inspiring thing for us, hope for us who 
are more melancholy anyways and kind of gravitate towards uh, the bluesy side of life or whatever. Uh, may this be the type of season that goes, okay, this is great. This is a religion that actually means something. It's not like this feel good prop me up for another week, but like actually exists and means something for my life and is, is intentional in that way. So give us the wisdom to know what to do with all of this that occurs to act out in your name. Amen.